My name is Ted Richard. As was said, it's good to be here. And uh, you can imagine 14 years of sitting in this room uh, watching Christmas programs, award ceremonies, SCAC festivals, and so on and so on. But to uh, come and preach behind this pulpit, I never saw that coming. So I'm deeply honored. And also, something that I've been wanting to say for those 14 years on behalf of my family, thank you for the school. You have no idea how much of a blessing it is. Maybe you do. I'm sure you do. But for us, being on the front lines of gospel ministry, very difficult gospel ministry in other churches in Greenville County, this school, this church was the rock behind us in helping us to raise our, our kids. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. So tonight I have the privilege not just to preach, but to continue the Ephesians series. So we're going to be continuing in verse 5. Yes, the whiteboard is uh, backwards because that's verse 5. And we're not going to start with verse 5, but I'll make that flip here in a moment. So if you look at the title of the sermon, I, I'm known to give sermons uh, goofy titles to make them more memorable. And you'll see there, Loose Lips Sink Ships. Anyone ever heard that saying before? I heard it uh, early in my military career in the Coast Guard. Uh, got yelled at by drone instructors with it. Uh, but then in studying it, we see that it was actually a propaganda campaign in World War II within the United States for Americans to be careful of spreading rumors and lies and things that weren't true happening in the different theaters, whether Europe or Pacific. And we all know what rumors do uh, to an organization, especially to a church, right? Sinks ship. So there is our title. And very simply, you will see the two points that we're looking at tonight. We'll spend most of our time in verses 3 and 4, and then we'll also look at verse 5. And so what we're looking at in 3 and 4 is we see behavior, specific behavior, that is not, it is unbefitting of the church. Unbefitting. It should not be, right? And Paul wasn't satisfied there, as we see in verse 5, because in order to make his argument even stronger, he tells us that the same behavior is actually befitting or indicative of the wicked, those who are outside of the church. And so we're going to jump right in. Now, I don't have a big idea or a main idea or a purpose statement. Sometimes I do. I did not with this. But I stole one from Joel this morning because it works. It's such a great one that can be applied. And you may remember, a life of following Jesus is a humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. I'm sorry, it's a life of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. That is at the root and the heart of even what we're looking at tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. So the introduction, just to, uh, to get us back into uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this illustration uh, that I'm going to give you is wonderful. I, I heard it years ago in counseling school. Because Ephesians, I've always felt like, is the closest thing that we have to a handbook on the Christian life. And my, one of my counseling professors, a man named Bill Slattery, said this. Now, keep in mind, he's Presbyterian, so the illustration may not work great for Baptists. But he said Ephesians is perfectly divided. Many of you know this. Chapters 1 and 3 is heavy in gospel theology, where chapters 4 through 6 is practical theology, right? So he said, and I love this. I've never forgotten it. Now, you will never forget it either. He said, chapters 1 through 3 is the music. Chapters 4 through 6 is the dance. And it's important that we go back to that, because as I w heard over and over in school, when it comes to interpreting scripture, context is king. If they made us get a tattoo in seminary, that would have been it. Context is king, the number one rule in biblical interpretation. 
And so we begin there, just a reminder of where we are. We're in chapter 5, so we're in the dance. We're in the practical application of gospel theology hitting the road. Second, as we get to chapter 4, what does chapter 4 begin with? What important word does Paul use? We saw it last week, too, when Drew preached. An important word that summarizes the Christian life. It's the walk. And we see that in the first verse of chapter 4, right? A walk, walk in a worthy manner. Walk in a worthy manner that glorifies God. So bringing that context even closer, we're looking at the walk. We're continuing in what we learned uh, last week. And then for immediate context, we go right back, as you'll see on the screen, to last week's passage that Drew taught us. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There it is. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. So here we are, we've, we've got the context reestablished. And now as we walk over here to the whiteboard, and they showed me how to work this earlier, and I didn't even notice that verse 5 was on this side. So let's see if I know how to do it. There we go. Verses 3 and 4. So as we look at this, get the right colors here, we see something that Paul changes. Going from verses 1 and 2, he was talking positively. And now we see a switch to more of a negative tone with the word but. Now, what I love here, and you've seen it in Scripture, you'll see it even more now, the teaching ministry of the Word of God is like two sides of the same coin. Much that God teaches us in Scripture is positive. In the New Testament, we call that didache. That's the word. It's the positive impartation of truth. But on the flip side, the other word is nutheteo, admonishment, where God will also teach us and instruct us in a more negative tone of what not to do, right? Here's what obedience looks like. Here's what it looks like to disobey. And so now we're switching to that with this word, but. A big switch, a big change, but still in the context of being an imitator of God as his beloved children. And we're confronted in verse 3 here immediately with a triad. And we're going to see this triad twice tonight. I'm going to go, what do you think, blue? Yeah, I'm going with blue for the triads. Drew does it so smoothly. <laughs> That's not good when the <laughs> fell apart. We're not doing blue. No blue. We'll switch to red. All right, so sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. So we see our first triad. You may be familiar with that phrase, sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia. I don't have to go into detail what that means. It's an umbrella term, a general term for all sexual sin, which was very prevalent in Ephesus, as you know, in many of the, the cities to where Paul went on his missionary journeys and wrote to, also very prevalent in our society. So a very fitting passage for us. And then you see the words impurity and covetousness. And when you first read it, you might think they're separate topics. But actually, again, the context makes it very clear. This is impurity as connected to sexual immorality as well as covetousness. They're all connected. They're all saying the same thing. And what is Paul saying? But these three things, which is all really one, again, impurity connected to that, covetousness, as we just heard, not just for kids, idolatry that's connected to that. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then here we see our imperative, must not even be named among you. I should have went for it with another color, but nonetheless. There is our command. 
And this, this catch this, right? Because a lot of times when we see Paul teach us, or the other gospel writers or, or biblical writers, they're talking about action. Don't do this. Here he's telling us, he's backing up, or in one way you could say he's pushing the fight, he's pushing the enemy back further. He's not even talking about action. He's not even talking about doing. He's talking about speaking it. The, this level of sinfulness should not even be named or spoken among the body of Christ. And you see the logic there. Because what is implied, if we're not talking about it, then we're also not doing it. Here's a great quote uh, you'll see up on the screen by Andrew Lincoln, excellent commentator. By the way, if you need a good commentary on Ephesians, word biblical commentary, excellent with one problem that you'll have to get over. He doesn't think Paul wrote it. But hey, other than that, it's amazing. And he says, to treat sexual... He does say the Holy Spirit wrote it, so I will throw that out there. To treat sexual matters as a topic of amusement is not to take them seriously enough and is likely to lead to an atmosphere in which the actual practice of sexual vices is also accepted too easily. Right? So great uh, commandment here for us. And now before I continue... I want to pause here and explain what we're about to see next and, and as we continue in verse 3 and in verse 4. In Scripture, we have imperatives, right? That's the strongest way to say command. We just saw an imperative, but we also have something else that we have to recognize and hold up next to imperatives. We have indicatives. Indicatives, obviously, are those things that are true about us, true about those of us who are Christ followers, right? We'll even see indicatives later, things that are true about the wicked, And so let's imagine everybody in this section over here loves imperatives. You're like, give me the commandments. I've got the Ten Commandments tattooed on my arm. I'm all about the commandments, especially when it comes to other people, right? But you guys neglect the indicatives. You don't have time for that. What would happen with that type of Christianity? I think we've probably all been touched by it as Baptists in the South. Very legalistic, very judgmental, very formal, graceless at times. Now, this section over here, you love the indicatives, right? Tell me about the gospel. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me what it means to be a Christian. What are all the things I have in Christ? And you camp out there. You love it. But you don't really have time for the commandments or the imperatives. What is that Christianity going to look like? We've seen it. Easy believism, lukewarm, presuming upon the grace of God. Well, God's already forgiven me, so I guess I can go do this or, or do that, right? Also unhealthy. But in Scripture, we have to see both. And we have to hold both up like this wonderful group in the middle, right? Because the imperatives and the indicatives are like guardrails on both side, on either side of the straight and narrow. And they protect us from the ditches uh, to the right or to the left. So with that in mind, let's continue. Because the second part of verse 3, we see an indicative. Here's our commandment. Here's our imperative must not even be named among you. Forget about doing it. Must not even be named among you. Look at this. As is proper among the saints. There's the indicative. And what's so special about the word saints there, you might be familiar with this, the word saints is also the word holy, and it's also connected to the word sanctification. And I read from one of the scholars this week that the definite, we can see it in English too, the definite article is not there. It doesn't say the saints, it's just saints. And what that does is it makes the definition of saints, who we are, emphatic as those who have been set apart by God. 
And it's beautiful language. This shouldn't be named among us, and it's not even proper. It shouldn't even be present amongst those of us who God has sovereignly set apart as his people, his holy and chosen people. And hopefully you see there the importance of both the imperative, the command, and also the indicative of remembering who we are in Christ, our identity, our identity. We're we're going to talk more about that later. Now we move to verse 4. And what he does in verse 4, very similar to verse 3, but now he specifically narrows in on what he means about not even being named among you. Again, we see, go back to red, we see the imperative, we see the command. Let there be no, and then we see our second triad, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And again, if you're like me, you read through this the first time, you think, oh, it's a new list. It's a new list of sins having to do with you know, gossip, slander, kind of like what Pastor Drew taught us last Sunday morning and, and the damage that does, and, and of course that does do damage. But at, at a closer look, remembering the context, this talk is what he means about not, not being named among you. This is bathroom talk. That is the specific sin. Again, loose lips sink ships. That's the specific sin he is targeting, targeting and warning the church not to even take part in. Now, I can't imagine, not that it never happened, but it's hard for me to imagine Hampton Park Baptist Church out in the hallways, uh, church members having conversations about this garbage, right? About taking this holy enterprise, the act of marriage, which is important within the context of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and, and joking about it. I know it happens much in society, and we hear it often, even in movies and things like that, even innuendos in children's movies, right? But in Ephesus, this was a real thing. And and you guys have have studied enough. You know this is a very uh, knowledgeable church that the the worship of the pagan gods and goddesses, Artemis, of course, was the big one there in Ephesus, included a lot of pornea. That, That was part of the worship, right? The temple prostitutes, things like that. And so it was really easy for this type of gutter talk, this filthy, evil, sinful joking about what God has made holy between a man and a woman in marriage, you can imagine it leaking it in. And important for Paul to say this, to remind them. And what I love, again, is he puts the battleground not at action, but he backs it up or even pushes it forward into the enemy's territory. Don't even talk about it. And I would say that let's not stop there. Let's not even think about it. That's where the battle should be happening, especially for those of us who are men. Not that this is an impossible sin for women, but it is obviously... uh, our primary sin. So we should be fighting the thoughts. That's where we should be giving the energy, using God's word, putting on the armor of God so that we're not even thinking about it, much less talking about it, much less taking part in it. But we're not done there. Paul gives us our second imperative, but look what he does again. He moves back to the indicative, which are not, which are out of place. So this type of gutter, filthy, bathroom talk. We're commanded not to do it. It's not proper among the saints, those of us who are set apart. Also, it's out of place. When is, uh, or where have you been where you saw something very odd and out of place? It just didn't belong. I'm sure every one of you could come up here and share a story. And uh, it's funny, I remembered one, and then I forgot it, so I asked my wife, and she remembered the same one, so obviously this is a good one. We had moved from Tampa Bay 
almost 15 years ago, and we went up to Flat Rock. I think it was our first or second time, you know, going and doing the whole Apple thing. And we were coming back, and you know where you're turning on to um, US 25. And before we turned on US 25 to go back to Greenville, the weirdest thing on the side of the road, there was a horse trailer, but what came out of the horse trailer were not horses, they were llamas. I was like, what in the world? Because, again, we're coming from Florida. The only place we've seen llamas is a zoo. Uh, later, I've seen them on people's farms and things. But nonetheless, at that moment, it was so out of place. It was weird. And that's how weird, out of place, and, of course, horribly sinful it is for the church to take part in this type of communication, this time of talking. And it's very dangerous, very dangerous for the body of Christ, as is all sinful communication. So, very important. But now... Now we're going to look at the put-on. Everybody remember chapter 4? What did, what did uh, the pastor teach us? What have we learned? Paul's glorious instruction on biblical habit change. Take off the old self, put on the new self. When you learn the mechanics of that, you see it everywhere in his writings. And here we see it in the next chapter. All right, We see our third command... Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Instead, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Andrew Lincoln uh, actually said elsewhere in, in the commentary, I never forgot this, he said, as we're reading through this passage, this desert of negatives, thankfulness is like an oasis. And it is the antidote to this type of sin. It is the antidote to idolatry, as we'll see here uh, in a moment. It is wonderful, because if you think of idolatry, idolatry and this type of sin and what's behind this type of communication is all about self-gratification. It's all about seeing uh, other people, other image bearers, as a means to an end for my selfish gratification. Whether it's in talk, whether it's in action, whether it's in thought, it's idolatry. And idolatry at its very basic definition is when I substitute the creator with the created. And I'm putting something of the created in his place. Now, as a lost person, I have no choice but to do that. I'm, I'm enslaved to sinfulness. But as Christians, as those of us who have been rescued from the prison of slavery to sin, we have to fight and fight that we never put something in God's place. And in a moment, we're going to talk about what to do when that happens, when we do stumble. But we're going to go on, uh, for time's sake, to verse 5. Look at that. I did it not once, but twice. So verse 5, we move on to the second point, right? We just saw the sin that is unbefitting for the church, for followers of Jesus Christ. Now we see what kind of Paul really returns to that indicative language. This particular sin is befitting of the wicked, of those who are outside of Christ, outside of the church. So as if Paul has not persuaded us enough with his commandments, his imperatives, and his indicatives, he now makes it clear that this is what lost people do. And it, again, should have no place in the body of Christ. For you may be sure of this, that everyone, and we see an important change in language here, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness. It's interesting. It's the same triad that we saw in verse 4. Except the grammar has changed, hasn't it? It's not nouns anymore. Now it's talking about action. It's talking about 
indicatives. It's talking about these people who, it's not that they're just doing these things, they are these things. They are sexually immoral. They are impure. They are covetousness, covetous, which, and here we see our definition, thank you, Paul, that is idolatry. That is idolatry. That sin we just got done talking about. That, this type of behavior is indicative of the lost, of those people. And what is tragic about these people, unlike those of us who are in Christ, going back to chapter 1, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. By the way, I love that. Often Paul will either say kingdom of Christ or kingdom of God. Here we see it all together. Same thing, the here and the now, but also the future glorious kingdom of God. And that's not only a persuasive tool for us, as if we needed more, that this behavior has no place in the church, but there's even between the lines that reminder of mission for those of us who have been saved. That there is a world of lost people outside of the kingdom of Christ who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They also need to see the good news of Jesus Christ manifested in the lifestyles and the behaviors of the church. Both when you're out at work, in the community, at school, but also if they happen to wonderfully come in here and join us one day for worship. So there is a brief exegesis, very brief. Keep taking the markers back with me, but that's okay. Now I want to end our time together with some application, because I haven't done you much good if I haven't done that. You'll see another parallel passage here uh, as we transition from 1 Corinthians. You'll, you'll recognize, recognize this right away. Paul says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love the next sentence. And such were, past tense, amen, some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So a great way to end the exegesis part. And I, I haven't said it yet, but I'll say it now. This could be a homework assignment for you. As you know, Ephesians, what makes it so special is it has a sister in the New Testament, does it not? The letter to the church at Colossae, written both by Paul at the same time, delivered uh, close to the same time. And chapter 3 would be the parallel of what we've been looking at here recently. If you take kind of the second part of chapter 4, first part of chapter 3 of, I'm sorry, chapter 5 of Ephesus, you'll find it in Colossians 3. And at the end of that first section of Colossians, I think it's like verses 15 through 17, chapter 3, 15 through 17, he mentions thankfulness three times making it emphatic, again, as that important put-on, which we'll talk about here in a moment. So, ending our time, I want to give you two points of application. The first application has to do with fighting sin. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to the putting on of seatbelts in your car, is it better to put on seatbelts proactively or reactively? Raise your hand if you think reactively. So, of course, no one's going to say that, right? Now, it might look cool in the movies, but that's impossible, right? Seatbelts, we have to put on proactively. And I believe that is the best way to fight sin. Do you think Joseph, when Potiphar's wife grabbed him, reacted? He did react, but don't you think he was, had something going on before, right? Because what did he say? 
How can I sin against God? That's evidence that he was proactively fighting temptation so that when it came upon him, he was ready to run, unlike David and Bathsheba. We don't have time to go there. But for us, we need to learn, if we're not already doing it, to fight sin proactively. And so I take you back to Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, which we learned recently. Here is Paul's plan of biblical habit change. About 10, 12 years ago, I had the privilege of studying under Jay Adams, the father of biblical counseling. And this is where I learned how to use this. And I was like, forget counselees. I need this. I need to learn this in my life. And you see three beautiful steps. Put off the old self. Identify those sins that you know do not please God, that are not indicative of Christians. Make a list. All right? These have to go. Second, have the spirit of your mind renewed. That's such an important step. This is where you're tapping into the power of God through the presence of his Holy Spirit, through his, his word, and through prayer to, again, put on the armor of God. Pray scripture. Memorize verses that you can pull out in battle and use to fight temptation in those moments. Prepare yourself ahead of time. I think this is best done at the beginning of our day. For me, it's the morning. Nighttime can work too. I just, as Don Whitney says, I don't sin much while I'm sleeping. So I love the morning for this type of proactive battle. So taking off the old self, stopping that habit that does not glorify God, tapping into his power daily, proactively, putting on the armor of God, and then putting on the new self. And uh, Jay Adams would call this dehabiting and then rehabiting. He kind of invented some words there, but it's okay. So we dehabit and then we rehabit. What action does glorify God that corresponds with the sin, right? Change the behavior. Again, don't forget about that tapping into God's power part. That's getting at the heart where the idolatry and the sin begins, not in the behavior. But again, we can talk more about that. I just want to remind you of that tonight. So important. And essentially what we're doing there is we're praying the imperatives as we're tapping into his strength. So be proactive in your battle against sin. And then the second thing I want to show you here is what happens when I do stumble. Whether it's the sin we looked at tonight or even another category of sin. What happens do I, when I do stumble? And friends, it's important, of course, for us to come before God in those moments, ask his forgiveness, and repent. And possibly ask the forgiveness of a, a brother or sister who we've sinned against. But we have to go before God. Because when we sin, we always sin against God. Primarily. Always. No matter what we do. Go before him. Ask his forgiveness. But as soon as you get up off your knees, don't go down the path of guilt and beat yourself up. Go down the path of gospel rehearsal. This is where we remember who we are in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, that never changes. Find a great passage. There's so many that help us rehearse the gospel. For me, it's actually Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We're not going to go there for time's sake, but I encourage you to review it. Because in verse 3, Paul calls us to worship. And who does he call us to worship? God the Father. Why? Because of all the spiritual blessings in the heavens that the Father has given to us in Christ. By the way, that prepositional phrase is 11 times in that passage. Either in Christ, in him, in the beloved. It's emphatic. And then we find these four wonderful gospel truths. And if you forget anything, remember them. They're so important. Because this is where I go. I try to go there every day. But especially when I have fallen or sinned. First one. In Christ, 
we have adoption. We're in the family. We are the people of God. That doesn't change if you are truly saved. We have adoption and election. Second, redemption. How amazing. Not only that God the Father would want us in his forever family, but that he chose to spend some of the precious blood of Jesus on me and on you to wash away our sins. Not only that, Jesus also was the wrath absorber, absorbing the wrath of God, forgiving our sins. Third, an eternal inheritance. We can sit around all day and imagine what that is. But in Christ, we have been given an eternal inheritance. And oh, by the way, Paul could not get over this. In all of his letters, he's always pointing our attention to the finish line of our faith, to the helmet of salvation, to the the crown that doesn't fade, to the body not made with hands. And then finally, the Holy Spirit. I, I take this for granted every day. It blows my mind away that God would put his own presence, the third person of the triune Godhead, in us. That he would essentially make us the temple of God. Individually, but more importantly, collectively, as the church. So here is where I go. You might have a passage, but when you do stumble, ask forgiveness, repent, but immediately put your faith in the grace of the gospel and your salvation in Christ. And then one last thing that I want to throw out there, too. One of the things I love about Hampton Park Baptist Church is you all provide biblical counseling for your people. I wish I could say a lot of churches do in evangelical circles. They do not. But you all do. And you have staff members and pastors who are ready to come alongside and do biblical, neuthetic counseling. So take advantage of that. Because chances are there's somebody in this room right now who... uh, their fight against sin, they've gotten weak and have stumbled. And it, and it happens. That's just the reality. But don't fight it alone. Ask for help, and you will get it. So, again, thank you for this opportunity. It has been a joy and a pleasure uh, to be with you, to continue this great passage in Ephesians, uh, which I think we'll pick up in a couple weeks. Let me close this in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for how you use Paul to write these letters to churches in his day, churches that he helped start in many cases. And yet here we are, almost 2,000 years later, the people of God. Now, you had that in your mind and in your infinite wisdom and inspiring these great texts. Help us to take the scriptures, Lord, and let us actively engage in them, not, not fall to the temptation to passively read them, but actively engage them and use them each and every day to glorify you, to worship, but also to fight sin. That we can take the battle line of what we talked about tonight and move it even further to the thought life and fight there. Fight in our hearts, Lord, that we would always take your word and mortify and put to death the sin that will pop up and come in the thought life. That it would never go to the words or even the actions. Let us as a church continue to be sanctified by your grace, by the gospel, by one another and grow in that grace as we go to reach a lost world that we can shine brightly for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.